My sermon is an hour long. We got to get started. Not really. It's not. It's not. Hello, everyone. Sorry. My sermon is really long, so we need to get started. And you need to get comfortable. Okay. In 1998, but oh yeah, I'm Cole. I'm the youth pastor. I'm not the normal person here. Uh, hello. If you receive an email from me that says Lonnie, uh, that, is all, that is my first name. Uh, Cole is my middle name. I know there's a lot of new people, so I just want to let you know that email is coming from me. Lonnie's not my assistant. It's actually me. It's very confusing. <laughs> Blame my parents. In 1998, an Italian philosopher named Giorgio Agamben writes a book called Homo Saker, Sovereign Power and Bare Life. And this is one of the most important books in political philosophy in some time, in 1998. And recently, okay, so recently some of the ideas of this book are beginning to find their limits and fall apart a bit, but that doesn't mean, ooh, am I a little hot? Is that a little, I can hear some echo. But that doesn't mean this book has not had a profound and lasting impression on politics, on philosophy, on theology, and our life, actually. You probably just don't know it. Um, at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, it is a book that demands you answer its questions before you move on past it. Okay, so it's a book that's like, well, I need to read this to understand what it's trying to say. I think that's at minimum. I discovered it because I started reading this writer online, and he was talking about Agamben all the time. He was kind of mildly obsessed with him. And so I was like, okay, well, I, I was, uh, was studying, uh, I was doing a research project studying the potato famine in seminary. In seminary? I don't know. And uh, there were some themes that, that were sticking out to me, and I was like, okay, I guess in, between, in the summer I'll just read this book and see what it's about. And I did. I, I read it, and I'm, I'm actually halfway through another one of his books called uh, Creation and Anarchy, The Work of Art and the Religion of Capitalism. But it's super dense, and I had a kid, and now it's just sitting on my bookshelf mocking me. <laughs> it's like, you can't read me. So, uh, so here, his main idea, uh, the one that got him on the map, is about the phrase homo saker. And I am no expert in political philosophy, I'm not, uh, or Agamben, but I, I do know if, if I am good at anything, it would be, I do know my way around theology a bit, and whenever I read an idea that maps over top of my theological commitments, I always find it extremely interesting. It's, it's interesting to see ideas that you learn in this field pop up in someplace else, and you're like, hey, that's, that's very similar. So, uh, this is what we have this morning. So, are you ready? Yeah? Okay, here we go. Uh, first, let's read our text uh, from the book of Numbers. Numbers 35. Let's take a look. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to give the Levites towns to live in from the inheritance the Israelites will possess, and give them pasture lands around the towns. Then they will have towns to live in and pasture lands for the cattle they own and all their animals. The pasture lands around the towns that you give the Levites will extend a thousand cubits from the town wall. Outside the town, measure 2,000 cubits on the east side, 2,000 cubits on the south side, 2,000 cubits on the west side, and 2,000 on the north. 
with the town in the center. So in other words, town, pasture lands. Okay. They will have the area as pasture lands for the towns. Okay. Chapter 35 opens at the end of the book of Numbers. We're coming to the end of the book of Numbers with the Israelites getting ready to move into the promised land. And God divided the land and gave it to the different tribes of Israel. However, the Levites were not given regions of land. They weren't given regions. Rather, they were given cities. This is going to be important. So while one tribe, let's say, got the state of Kansas, right? The Levites were given Lawrence, like just a city. A city within a region. Because there was something sacred about the Levites. Something about them was set apart, right? This is key, set apart. And the Levites, the Levites were the high priests of the temple of God, cut off from the land and home in the temple. They were caretakers of the space between God and God's people. So Agamben has a bit to say about sacredness. And and that's going to be, again, it's going to be important for us this morning. When we normally think of sacred, actually, I should have buried this point at the end of my sermon because I think this is the best part. So after this, it's just all downhill. But this is really interesting. When we normally think of sacred, we think of something elevated to a status of special. Like, oh, that's really, that's sacred. That's special. Don't touch that. That's sacred. But when you hear Agamben, his, his uh, background is in linguistics. So when he talks about the word sacred, um, he never gives you the feeling of special. He roots it and, fi- and traces it um, rather with a core meaning of something that is dirty. It's dirty. And you might be thinking, I don't really think of dirty when I think of sacred. But I bet, I actually, I think a few of you probably, probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Give me a hand so I don't feel alone. How many of you used to be pastors or are currently, you know, pastors in the room? Okay, cool. You used to be pastors. So if you, those of you who have um, hung out with like your wife's friends, all the, all the like, or, the, or I'm sorry, or your husband's friends, uh, you hang out with the spouses while they're all talking. I, my, my wife works as a teacher. And so when they would be like a party or something, the spouses would all hang out and talk. You know, we would all, like, so what do you do? I'm like, oh, I do construction. And what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Cool. <laughs> and they just walk away. Uh, this is the common thing. There's something, it, as I was reading it, I'm like, I know exactly what he's talking about. There's something dirty, like that's the word, about something that's sacred that causes you to kind of pull back a bit. And sacredness to Ngamben is the thing that makes you recoil in uneasiness. I love that. In the inverse, he doesn't say this, but you can conclude then for Ngamben, if there isn't an element of dirty or revulsion to the sacred, it probably isn't sacred because it probably is not set apart. It's domesticated in public life. I mean, come on. Amen. Let's just end the sermon right there. That's so cool. Okay, so... Let's keep going. Verse 6. Six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge. Okay. Cities of refuge. To which a person who has killed someone may flee. In addition, give them 42 other towns. In all, you must give the Levites 48 towns. 
together with their pasture lands, the towns you give, or together with their pasture lands, the towns you give the Levites from the land the Israelites possess are to be given in proportion to the inheritance of each tribe. Take many towns from a tribe that has many, but few from one that has few. Okay, so here we find God commanding the nation to give the Levites 48 towns. Six of these towns are to be called cities of refuge. These cities of refuge are refuge. These cities of refuge are places where a person who has killed someone, that's what the text says, killed someone may flee for protection. And the, that word killed in Hebrew means murder, kill, or slay. It's actually a phrase that the KJV translate, translates as manslayer. <laughs> yeah. Manslayer. That's... If you agree with James Kugel about how to conceptualize and read scripture, uh, then you have, to, you have to kind of always imagine as you're reading, especially the Torah, you have to imagine a committee of people arguing about the text. Uh, therefore, the text is always in conversation and in argument with itself. It's always, you have to kind of read it and then kind of bounce it off the other parts. This text right here is a perfect example of what Kugel's talking about. So verse 6, let's just go back. Verse, verse 6 is a wild verse. I just kind of want to like let it seep into our imaginations a bit. Let's look at it. Six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone may flee. It goes on to describe a few things and then it's like someone else in the text, like a voice maybe from outside the text is like, what, what the heck? <laughs> What is verse 6 about? So anyone who kills someone can just run to these towns and what? We have to just live in towns of murderers and credibly accused killers? Verse 9 shows up and this is what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. I love this. Like In the middle of the text it goes... God said to Moses, answer the questions about verse 6 because they're going to have some questions. Verse 6 says, verse six says, select six towns. Six. 9 through 11 says, some towns. Then verse 6 says, anyone who kills may flee. Verse 9 through 11 says, anyone who accidentally kills. It's like, it's, it's like verse 6 is so scandalous, it already starts explaining itself to, to kind of nullify a bit how radical it is. Right? So, okay, here's a bit of a spoiler. Much like the year of Jubilee, if you, if you know anything about the year of Jubilee, it's where all of the land and wealth, I think this is right, but all the land and wealth resets every 50 years back to the original owners. It's like a big societal reset. So however much you earned and, and made every 50 years, it's like reset back to whoever owned it first. Um, there's not a lot of evidence that the year of Jubilee was ever really done much at all. <laughs> Uh, and there's not a lot of evidence that these refuge, cities of refuge ever functioned the way they were supposed to, the way the law asked them to. And you can make the case that from verse 6 to verse 9, it's already starting to unravel. And here's some more evidence in this. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, the text says, When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves... Three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. 
Three, we got six to three. Here's another change in Deuteronomy. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally without malice. We have a new complexity to the issue. There's more specificity around who can run to these sanctuary cities. The only people let in are people who killed someone unintentionally without malice. So you can imagine the court battles, whether or not someone is granted admittance into the city of refuge, trying to determine if the person had any malice. Do you think they had malice? I don't know. That was, a pretty, that was an act of malice. I'm not sure that qualifies as malice. I mean, what is malice exactly? So what we have here is the law is, in real time is getting less and less difficult to follow by becoming more and more complex. Totally unlike today. Totally unlike today. <laughs> there were built-in excuses, right, not to follow it. If we had a few more chapters, pretty soon I guarantee you it would have said, those cities of refuge, what they actually mean is to be a place of refuge in your heart for people, just to carry it in your heart. That's what the, tech, that's what the law is about. But why? Like, why is, it, why is this happening? Why do we have a record of this, of people wrestling with what verse 6 is about? You can find throughout antiquity stories of refuge cities, and almost all of them, this is reality, eventually become overridden with people and collapse. It's real. Cities of refuge move around. Like that one goes away and that one pops up. Because it is extremely hard to maintain them. So you can see in real time a debate going on about who is led into the cities of refuge in an effort to control the flood of people and the kinds of people that move in. Verse 12. There will be places of refuge from the avenger. This is that word in different translations is the avenger of blood. So that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. These six towns you, you give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be, will be a place of refuge for Israelites and for foreigners residing among them so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. Right? This is, this is a radical idea in the text. Any Israelite or foreigner could run to these cities and be protected from the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood, by the way, was someone elected by the family to enact the eye-for-an-eye law. Uh, when you, if you kill, killed somebody, they legally were allowed to kill you as blood for blood, right? But the city is a refuge. If you could get there, you could be protected from that. They could receive a trial, and they could be protected throughout their lifetime as long as they stayed inside the, the walls of the city. And you can see how this idea is equally just and ripe for abuse. And so the Levites had to work out, their job is to work out the maintenance and the care of these cities of refuge. What were the rules? And how do these cities function? How, do we, how are we going to make this happen? And the Jewish writers say something interesting. They say the cities of refuge were not cities of protection by nature. We get caught up in that because of violence, right? Um, but that's not what they were. were. They, rather, the cities were cities of atonement. I love that. They functioned as normal cities that looked to restore people back to normal life. 
But in the city, everyone had a past, a story, a shame. The Levites did their normal Levite thing. So that means the city was a place of Torah study and education on temple work and Torah practice. It's almost like a city of priests that organized a common life for a people who had no place else to go. Okay? So Agamben is very interested in the idea of having no place else to go. At the intro of his book, Agamben writes that the ancient Greek and Roman world had two words for life. Two words. Bios and zoe. Stay with me here. Here we go. Bios, this is kind of confusing because you think it's going to be backwards, but this is what it is. Bios was biographical life. Not biological. Biographical life. It's your public life. Your life was, the life of the view that was conscripted into the political machine. The life that was recognized by the state. With, right, so with bios life, you can buy and sell and move up in society, become famous, make ch- changes to the state's social life. It's your public life. Zoe, Zoe was normal life. Normal life. Think actually zoological. This is animal life. Zoe was animal life. Eating, sleeping, sex, relationships, Zoe is what they would call bare existence, okay? Agamben claims that bios life gives, gives zoe life meaning. However, bios life is a particular kind of meaning given to bare, exi- bare existence by the sovereign. He doesn't necessarily mean God here, by the way. He just means the sovereign, The sovereign is, for him, whoever has the right to kill and not have any punishments. Okay? Here we go. Stay with me. This is going to loop back around here. So, whoever can kill and get away with it is sovereign, and the sovereign determines bios life, public life. Bios life is a meaning that everyone else agrees to and strives to participate in for threat of violence. By the way, your kids kind of know this reality. They know this, and you probably have felt this reality. Um, it's like, a, it's like a, a, a soccer team that's like, everyone is allowed, we are, we're open to everyone to play. But if you're not fast enough and you don't show respect to the coach, we're going to have to cut you. Sorry, I mean, that's how it goes. Okay, so his example is, we're about to take communion. So his example is this. Agamben uses this metaphor to explain bios life and zoe life. Um, in the Catholic tradition, the priests come and bless the bread and the wine, and, and, they, and they bless the bread and the wine. And obviously, on a level, you're like, it's bread and wine. We know it's bread and wine. But it ontologically changes into the body and blood of Christ. And, and he's saying this is exactly what the sovereign does with bios life. It takes animal life, human beings, normal zoe life, and gives it a blessing, and the animal man becomes a citizen of the state. You're still the same, but it's like, voila, you now have rights. Magically, in some sense, giving them rights and privileges that are, so they are, we are still Zoe, we eat, sleep, we have sex, but we've been granted bios, rights, privileges, access. You all with me? Okay, Whew. 
That was a tough one. The, the Homo Saker, the name of the book, is the person who the sovereign decides to remove all bios life from. Someone who has the rights and citizenship stripped from them and is reduced to Zoe life. And they enter into what he calls the state of exception. And this person, this person can now be tortured and killed and you can do whatever you want with them. Because they are essentially seen as the world of animals. Okay? The big example he uses is the Holocaust. The Nazis, the first thing they do is they reduce the Jewish people from bios life to zoe life in a series of incremental steps. The first thing they do is they revoke their German citizenship, thus making them people without a state. And then they degrade them, they torture them, and incinerate them, and no one's coming for them. They're animal life. So, this is his book, heavy. But why do this? Why does this happen? Agamemnon is saying, this is how the sovereign king, or whatever the sovereign is in the world, legitimizes the violent protection of itself. And it keeps its citizens unconscious and, more importantly, unmotivated to its actions. Bios life becomes the determining frame with which we make meaning of life. You have value because of your citizenship or good behavior in bios life, in public life. So the one who doesn't behave is stripped away and punished, thus affirming and propping up our belonging. Okay? So somebody comes along, and his name is Achille Mbembe. I think I got that right. He is a writer that is in this tradition and says, and he's heavily influenced by Agamben. And he says, in modernity, we've created death worlds worlds. This is not just people, but also lands, areas, spaces that have been removed from bios life and evolved into zoe life, bare existence. These spaces, think of it, do you know those like n- n- those tile games that have nine sp- slots, but you only get eight tiles and you keep moving them around? This is what he's talking about. It's like death worlds that just move around that justify the game. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. These spaces, these lands have no rights or access to protection or resources based solely on their status given by the sovereign. They're simply areas that the, uh, uh, Mbembe says the markets turn a blind eye to. And whether people live or die is not an actual concern. The only response is, you should have moved. I mean, man, why don't you move? And Mbembe, who's, who's Cameroonian, he wants to say that this is how Western Europe and America can commit the Holocaust, lock children in cages at the border, abandon inner cities to violence and poverty, and watch as the poorest among us are dying from opioids and not have a complete riot of the people. And we know unconsciously that our rights and privileges come from the sovereign and can also be taken away by the sovereign. And at any given moment, as quickly as I, I bless the body and blood of Christ, gone. Let's just say, locally, let's make it real. Last year, there was a significant movement by a think tank called the Cicero Institute to draft a law making it illegal to be homeless in the state of Kansas. Illegal. Many of you, as an act of worship, went to Topeka to speak and protest about this bill. 
that was in committee. And by the grace of God animating your work, you killed that bill in committee. Praise God. Where exactly do we want homeless people to go? What do we think that will solve? Mbembe and Agamben are pointing to a reality that happens amongst us. It happens all the time. And our text this morning is speaking to this. Our text this morning is about, is about the sacredness of human life, of bare life, the sacredness of existence. In particular, Numbers 35 is God being concerned about what happens to human beings who are the homo sacer, the ones who have bios life stripped from them and reduced to zoe life. In the text, when someone commits a murder in Numbers or manslaughter, they are now free to be killed. As soon as they do it, they have to run to the city of refuge. They are free to be killed. They've lost their protection from the law. But Numbers 35 says they can flee to a city of refuge full of sacred priests set apart from the bios life. The bare human can have their story heard. And most importantly, they are not allowed to have all meaning stripped from them. They are not allowed to be reduced to Zoe life. By entering the city, they are allowed to have meaning to their life again. They are made whole again, returned to an alternative bios life within the walls of the city. They are given rights and privileges again. Beautifully here, close to the end of the book of Numbers, are the people of God beginning to realize what God originally meant when God announces the future of God to Moses and the people as they first left Egypt. Check this out. Here on Sinai, on Sinai, Exodus 19, this is the text. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Just, yeah. And how I carried you on eagles', eagles wings... And brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God is saying, Remember, remember, people of God, you were once reduced to Zoe life, to bare existence to animal life, and I brought you out of that land, and I've given you a new bios life, a new future to make meaning of your existence. You are to be priests, a holy nation, standing at the gates of the city waiting for the sacred to flee your way, waiting for those reduced to Zoe life by the market to come our way. Yes, of course, Numbers 35 is about the management of violence in the land. Of course, that's, that's what it's about. But it is also a glimpse into the radical future of our worship. As the world continues to degrade and exploit human beings and people groups and lands, all in protection of, I don't know, our 401ks and home prices, as far as I can tell. I'm trying to figure out exactly. The church's response is to be a community for the victims of the market's sovereign violence. And as Mbimbe reminds, 
It is happening here in our city. And may we be people with eyes to see, with an imagination shaped to pay attention to when it's happening. May we become priests. May this place be a a, a place of priests who organize a sacred common life that people may and want to flee to. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray for those in this room who have uh, fled to Redemption Church for mental health and safety. We confess what we have done and what we have left undone. God, I pray for those of us in this room who have fled to Redemption Church for spiritual health and safety. And we confess what we have done and what we have left undone. God, I pray for those in this room who have fled to Redemption Church for physical health and safety. We confess what we have done and what we have left undone. God, I pray for those in this room who have fled to Redemption Church for forgiveness and atonement. We confess what we have done and what we have left undone. God, I pray for those in this room who have fled to Redemption Church because we have no place else to go. We confess what we have done and what we have left undone. Amen. at Redemption is the ushers will just dismiss you row by row. You can kind of come down this way, file to the front, and uh, there will be people here to serve you. They will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can respond with amen or I will remember. First, though, we will read from uh, 1 Corinthians what the Apostle Paul told the church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it today into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us, make us new from the inside out, and then send us into the world to be salt and light, and let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good and that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come? Mm -hmm.